Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friend Sean Walker of Simple Cove. Hey, guys. Hey, man. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. How are you? So I'm not your friend, only Sean is? You're both Correct. my friends. Oh, <laughs> well, you, you, introduce Sean, you introduce Sean as your friend, but I'm just like, hey, I'm just this dude. Well, actually, I said my <laughs> friends, plural. Okay. I missed that. Sorry. <laughs> this podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also want to thank our new patron to our Patreon campaign, Bart Goldfried. Thank you for listening, Bart, and uh, for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the costs of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. So let's get right into it. Guy, you're up first for the first question. Cool. This starts out with says, a follow-up question that may get Guy going. I am currently upgrading my three horsepower saw stop PCS 52 inch because I'm moving states and I'm gifting, gifting it to my father. That's very, very nice of you. Uh, his name is Ray, by the way. That's very nice of you, Ray, to, to gift it to your dad. Originally, my thoughts were to go right for the five horsepower saw stop ICS without much consideration for other saws. I do like the safety feature just as an insurance policy because you never know. We all do stupid things from time to time. Can you speak on times where the saw stop does not operate as, as intended and fails to save the injury and other saws that may be better, but do not include the technology? I am typically pretty careful. And again, Ray. So the reason I'm saying this, because I know that one of you two guys just had a recent episode. I cannot answer the question of, have I had the saw not do what it's supposed to do? Because I do not own a saw stop. I have a Powermatic PM2000, which has the same table size as the ICS. The ICS has a larger table than the PCS. Mm -hmm. Extra three inches in front of the blade. I had the, the luxury of seeing a five horsepower saw stop ICS sitting next to a Powermatic PM2000. And going underneath the hood... And the reason I went with the Powermatic simply because, A, it was a lot less money by about $1,500. Also, the trunnions and all the mechanisms underneath were a lot beefier. I mean, a lot beefier. That's why I went with it. And mine is a five horsepower also. Now, have you guys had any <laughs> problems with your saw stop? Sean, I'll let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it won't cut aluminum, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so if you want it to cut aluminum, no, I'm just joking. I did trigger the brake cartridge by, again, barely touching aluminum like an idiot. Yeah, that's uh, I've not run into it with any skin, thankfully. Only aluminum miter tracks, T-track, and it's triggered the, the blade or the brake twice, damaged uh, obviously both blades and required a $80 replacement cartridge. Completely 100% my fault. Not the saw's fault. It was yeah. doing what it's supposed yeah. to do. My fault. Did it, did it ruin the blade? Uh, yes. The, the blade is, well, here's the thing. Did it ruin it? Bend the blade or something, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it warped it and uh, tore mm -hmm. one of the teeth off. So I'm going to reach out to a couple of companies that I got recommendations on Instagram that will fix the, uh, the tooth issue and also flatten it out since it's not too crazy warped. Do you remember who those people, who those companies are? 
Uh, yeah. Hold on one second. But uh, Hui, do you got anything to add to that while I look this up? Well, one thing to consider with the saw stop too is if your wood is over a certain moisture content, and I don't know what that limit is, it will actually trip the brake because water is conductive. And so if you're touching mm -hmm. uh, the wood as you're pushing it through, and if it's too moist, it will trip the brake. Isn't there like a test function on it where you can disengage it, but there it'll is. tell you if it'll, if it'll uh, trip it because yep. of moisture content? Well, uh, you disengage it and you do a test cut and it will show if the brake would have tripped based on the material that you're putting, that you put through it. So, so yes, a couple of times uh, with material that I've had drying in my shop, I was pretty positive that it was below uh, the limit in terms of moisture content that could run through the saw, but I wasn't exactly sure. So I did a couple of test pieces. Those are just things you just need to be cognizant when you're dealing with that kind of technology. Cogna what? <laughs> <laughs> Using those big words. So the, one of the companies is dynamicsaw.com. Apparently they will sharpen bits and blades and, and uh, also flatten saws or blades as well. Cool. Yeah. You just have to be really careful. Man, you really do. It gets expensive fast if you're if you're not careful. I probably took off a thirty second of an inch of aluminum. I just just barely, but that it doesn't matter. It, yeah. You can also if you have the saw off, obviously uh, not turn completely off, but turn you know off and not spinning. And if you were to touch it, you're going to get a little uh, a little indicator on the front that saw won't stop. So that'll kind of help you uh, determine if you're going to cut something that's going to trigger it. But again, we said you can bypass it and cut. And if you're, if you're concerned about wet wood, you can disable that. Yeah. As, as far as answering Ray's question as best I can anyways, because I don't own a saw stop. I have nothing against saw stop. I, like I said, I went with the Powermatic because I felt it was a, a machine that was built more heavy duty than the saw stop. Mm -hmm. If you like the technology of the saw stop, I say, go for it. I, there's a guy I follow on Instagram, Andy Glass from Glass Impressions. Mm -hmm. He posted over the weekend where I believe it was his nephew who looked to be a pretty young guy, set it off because his finger touched the blade. He was he would have run his hand through the saw and he didn't even have a nick on it. So thank God, you know, Andy did have a saw stop. Right. That is a very good testimonial of why in some shops you should have a saw shop, a saw stop. Yeah. Hui, have you triggered your brake yet? I have not. Thankfully, I have not. Do you notice that while you're using it, that like every piece of wood that you run through there, are you like, do you ever second guess what you're cutting and, and hesitate or, you know, does it concern you at all? Particularly when I'm using the miter gauge, but yes, the material as well. Like I said, I, I test everything through before I actually cut the material. I shouldn't say every single piece, but uh, so if I have a batch of wood that's been drying in my shop or uh, stickered in my shop for a while, and I know that that batch all came from the same time period that I bought it from, then I'll test it through. And for the most part, I'll feel comfortable after that if I know that I'm not going to trip the brake. But these are practices that you should be doing anyway, which is, you know, knowing the moisture content of your wood, uh, making sure that You've uh, run your miter gauge through with the blade up before you even turn on the saw to make sure that it's not going to nick the blade because uh, you don't want to be cutting through aluminum even if you didn't have a saw stop. <laughs> so, uh, you know, these are just things that you need to be co uh, 
excuse me, I won't use the word cognizant because it's too big. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> these are things that you need to be aware of anyway. Uh, and you should be having a saw stop is no substitution for your common safety practices. And one yeah. thing that I see a lot of and the saw stops not going to prevent is kickback. And I see these guys that are using push sticks and they're using it on the wrong side of the material. They're using yeah. it too far away from the blade. And it's like, that's just a recipe for kickback. The saw is not going to stop that. I see so much stuff that just scares the hell out of me. It's like, yeah. oh my gosh. That's a subject for another day. Yeah. So who's got the next question? Sean, you do. Yep. So uh, this is a pretty complex question and it's about finishing. Hey guys, love the podcast as always. Please keep it up. I have a quick question on finishing. I know you covered this topic, but I'm curious about protection from watermarks. I had a client recently that wanted a long desk for her children out of walnut. I explained that water in wood or on wood finish is never a good idea, leaving standing water, cups, rings, etc. Is there a finish out there besides epoxy that will withstand this water? I'm also wondering about hot items. I've noticed some finishes, lacquer, for instance, will leave a ring if you put a hot cup on it. Are there any finishes that won't fail with either of these issues? Thanks so much. This is a pretty complex question because we need to know more about your setup. Do you have the ability to spray or are you just brushing and patting on your finishes? Uh, if you're spraying, uh, you can get some pretty durable finishes like a conversion varnish, but for, for every pro, there's probably a con with the conversion varnish. It is pretty. It is a, a durable finish. It has 30 to 40% solids, uh, so it's going to lay down. It has more solids than a, than a traditional lacquer. It is you know resistant to heat, water, and wear, but your negatives, the repairability on conversion varnishes, as Guy will tell you, is is next to impossible without sanding and stripping. You're not going to just touch a, a spot up. Now, just to preface this conversation, I've not used a conversion varnish, so I could be missing some points here. So, Guy, if you wanted to, or Hui, if you wanted to chime in on the on the conversion varnish. I have not used conversion varnish either, but I had a conversation with Freddie Roman. And Freddie Roman um, is a restorer and a very good maker. And I'm on another podcast with him, the Against the Green podcast. <laughs> and I had a conversation with him about conversion varnish and he if you know Freddie he gets pretty riled up pretty quick and he just is like no no never ever 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 and for him it's a matter of repairability you just can't repair it right yeah once it's once it's on it's on there's if the finish fails it has to be stripped and, and redone which in is not that huge of a deal I mean if you're worried about standing water cup rings, things like that. Spar varnish is, is a is a good finish for something if that's what you're worried about. You know, any tabletop, it, it's going to get some wear on it. Long desk, tabletop, whatever. Myself, most of the time for that, I'm using a polyurethane, an oil-based poly. Yep. Uh, not armor seal, because armor seal is very thin. Uh, I'll usually take polyurethane, and mix it with equal parts of naphtha and boiled linseed oil, and then wipe it on in very, I want to say medium coats. Build, and you're going to have to build a film finish on it. Mm -hmm. Three, four coats. And that's going to stand up to quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And it can be repaired fairly easy, not really super easy, not something like shellac, uh, which would be a really bad choice for something like this. Yeah. Um, myself, that's what I would do. And I've done that on many a tables and uh, they hold up really well. Yeah. 
So uh, I've I've talked with uh, one of the guys that I've featured on as our feature follows, uh, Eric Reeson. I've talked to him at great lengths about some water-based finishes. And man, there are some really good water-based finishes. Now, mind you, they are applied using a, uh, a sprayer. You should check out his uh, YouTube channel, Eric Reeson, uh, because he does some really extensive testing with some chemicals, water, a whole slew of uh, different things that he tests water-based finishes on. And you'd be surprised. If- and I'm going to interrupt you. And if you want to get a really good idea of what he does, mm-hmm. check out the Against the Grain podcast, air date 516, where we have a where we have an interview an hour long with Eric Reason. That's the Against the Grain Against the Grain podcast, everybody. <laughs> check out his YouTube because uh, he does some pretty extensive testing, and I think you'd get some pretty uh, good answers about what the durability of some of these water-based finishes that he uses. And some of them are not expensive at all, uh, so check that out. I think you'll uh, I think you'll find some uh, yeah. some good alternatives to either oil based or uh, uh, chemical based solvent based uh, material. Yeah. So yeah. you know there are some folks that uh, believe and you know they just want to go. It's all about repairability because they know it's going to get damaged, so they may use something like a hard wax oil and put on several coats, and you know it's easy to repair, mm-hmm. and they're going to have to repair it. Uh, but there's several options out there. This is a this is a pretty picky one and pretty tough one to answer without knowing what your setup is. If you can spray, or are you limited to brushing and wiping on on your finishes? Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's some pretty pretty crazy stuff like 2K polyurethane and conversion varnish and high build lacquers, and it's a very complex subject. Very complex for my for my little brain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and none of us are experts in finishing. No, that's why we stick to what works. Yeah, I know sure as hell I'm not. But I said, if I had a concern about watermarks, I would just go with the spar varnish, which would be a good, tough finish. That's what they put on like doors. There's a lot of UV protection. Uh, it's waterproof and it's a very tough finish. So, right. so there, uh, you got a few options to look at. So on to you, Hui. All right. My question is from Michael and it is regarding Bailey Industrial Tools. He says, I currently own an eight inch Bailey jointer it's the IJ875, and I really like it. I've been contemplating purchasing a freestanding router table and possibly a cyclone system, cyclone style dust collector. My current shop is outfitted nicely with good tools, and for example, Powermatic planer, drum sander and mortiser, saw stop table saw, Laguna bandsaw, etc. But I'm wondering if any of you have experience with Bailey. And what your opinion is on them. Uh, I find their prices are slightly less than, say, Powermatic and other top brands. So it makes sense to consider them only if they're a trusted brand. I don't see or hear much about them. And all I have to go on is the joiner I have. I will say their manuals leave a lot to be desired. Well, the truth is (laughs) manuals on a lot of companies are a lot to be desired. Yeah. Um, Except SawStop. Yeah. Actually, their manuals act quite excellent. And anything from Incra. Yes. Here, here's, I have a Bailey industrial mortiser and I will say that the mortiser is, it's okay. I've used a Powermatic mortiser, the, the freestanding mortiser, not the benchtop version. And that mortiser is phenomenal. It's also six, $700 more than the Bailey mortiser that I bought. The Bailey mortiser that I bought has a tilting head. It's it's got all the you know nice features of of what you'd want from a from a mortiser. It's less expensive than Powermatic, but it's more expensive than say a Grizzly. 
And I would say that the Bailey Mortiser that I got, it, it's okay. It's definitely not as good as the Powermatic. Well, I, I guess my question is, what do you find that the Bailey is lacking that the Powermatic has? Yeah. So here, here's, here's a good example. I actually had a, a problem with the tilting mechanism on the Bailey Mortiser when I first got it in that the shaft was uh, too loose for the housing mechanism that tilted the mortiser left and right. It was not machined to the correct tolerance. So I contacted the company and it took about a month for that part to come in. Uh, They had to order it and then get it into their warehouse and then send it off to me. You know, that, that kind of thing can happen even for top of the line brands and manufacturers. Uh, So I don't completely fault them for that, but again, it was kind of a a nuisance. You know, when you get a tool, you kind of expect that you don't have to deal with that. So that was a little bit of a mark against them. Then again, they did correct it and they did ship it to me. And it was about as timely as it could be, you know, getting a part from China. So uh, once, once I got that part in, everything was fine. Of course, you know, I had to, you know, remove a couple bolts and take it apart and then put it all back together. So that was, again, a little bit of a pain. Uh, so I would say, yeah, the experience was okay. It wasn't it wasn't the best, but they did make it right. So I can't completely fault them for that. Yeah. Uh, Guy, I think you, you know something about, a lot more about uh, the quality of a lot of these machines that look the same because this mortiser looks a lot like a lot of other mortisers that I've seen. A, a great example of it is if you look at like a 15 inch thickness planer, you look at something like a Grizzly, a Jet, a Powermatic, or a Bailey has one mm-hmm. also. They all look exactly the same. The specs are identical, but on the price scale, there's almost a 1500 almost twice as much going from the grizzly to the powermatic why is that first of all is the motors powermatic typically use a baldor or a leeson motor which these are american made motors while the grizzly is using a, a very inexpensive chinese made motor not that that's a bad thing i'm just saying that the powermatic uses a better motor mm-hmm. <laughs> That's part of the cost. The other thing you have to remember that all this stuff, the Powermatic, the Jet, the Bailey, and the Grizzly, they're coming off the exact same production line in China. The difference is, is that when the, the parts are cast and then milled, Powermatic has certain specifications as to the tolerance of that manufacturing process. And it is much tighter and higher than what you will find on the Grizzly. I'm not saying Grizzly is bad. I've owned a lot of Grizzly equipment and I've had no issues with it. But what I'm saying is that the Powermatic stuff, Bailey stuff, Jet stuff, whatever it is, their equipment is spec to different tolerances than other people's are. And the tighter the tolerance, the more expensive it is. That's why you see a lot of big difference in these prices. Another thing is marketing. Powermatic does a lot of marketing. That costs money. Bailey does almost no marketing. That's probably why you haven't heard a lot about them. Yep. Grizzly does very little marketing. They really don't have to. Right. Everything, if you roll all that up in a ball, that's why some of this equipment is better. 
myself, I'm in the process of changing everything over in my shop to Powermatic. Everything that can be Powermatic in my shop will be Powermatic. I've had very good luck with my, my table saw, my band saw. I've got the benchtop mortiser. I just recently got their 22-inch drum, drum sander. Yep. And by the end of the year, I should have their drill press also, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I couldn't be happier with the, the equipment. Is that drum sander open-ended? Yes. So it's a 2244? Yes. That's cool. It's a tank. A lot of this stuff is very hard to quantify. Mm-hmm. There's just an overall feel to it. So when I was using my um, Supermax... 1938. Very good machine. Always had very good results with it. You know, there's times I screwed up or I was taking off too much and I burned some stuff. But that happens. You know, that's life in the big city. <laughs> this Powermatic, it feels like a machine. Mm-hmm. I don't know any other way to describe it. It's 400 some pounds of sanding machine. It's like you're putting wood through a thickness planer. Not that you're thicknessing with it. But it's like it, it, it has that type of solid feel to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So getting back to Michael's question, what I would really recommend doing, you know, you're looking at a freestanding router table and a cyclone dust collector. You really just need to figure out what your needs are and then look at your wants on top of that and then find the machines that fit what you need it for. And then consider your budget. You know, that do that with every machine. That's just that's just my advice. In terms of maybe what you might expect in ter- uh, in quality from the Bailey, if you're looking at Powermatic Bailey and then maybe Grizzly at, at the lower end, the more budget budget line, it's priced more so than the Grizzly. It's priced lower than the Powermatic, and there's a reason for that. So you might expect that a Powermatic machine is going to have a lot beefier components maybe some nicer features. The cast iron might have higher tolerance than the Bailey. The Bailey might have higher tolerance than the Grizzly. So try to consider that as well in terms of why price of a product is more expensive than the other. There's there's reasons behind it. Do you have any, do you have any thoughts on this, Sean? Yeah. Um, and don't just take what we're saying uh, as, you know, as the final spoken word on, on Bailey tools. Definitely yeah, go and, and research. What was that? I said, I'm an idiot about Bailey. I don't know anything about him. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Google is your friend and go read existing reviews on their tools and, and see what other people that have the tools think. Um, and you may find a, a common issue with all the owners of their cyclone dust collector, and it may have you pointing in another, in another direction and go with, uh, you know, something from Grizzly or Laguna or Powermatic or something like that. Does Powermatic even sell uh, cyclone dust collectors? Yeah, they just they just came out with one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so there you go. Um, just read reviews from the people that have the exact model that you're looking for, and, and see what they think. You know, they'll hopefully have reviews after they've had it for six months, a year, two years, and see if, what kind of problems they have, and if it's a common issue amongst all the people that own that. And just keep reading and doing research before you buy. Yeah. Well, guy, I think uh, we're on to you now. So the question I have is from Lamar, and Lamar writes, he has a question about MFT tops. He's looked at them, and he's also looked at the tops and benches for armor tools. And it says, it's a butcher block top and has three-quarter inch holes. I do use Festival sanders, a router, and track saw. But is there any reason 
that using a three quarter inch dog hole top would be inferior to the 20 millimeter top Festool uses. I know the Festool dog hole devices will not work, but there are lots of three quarter inch accessories. If the dog holes are aligned correctly, I can bump the Festool track against the dogs to line up cuts. Am I missing a downside? <clears throat> he also writes the armor tool is the armor top is you know several hundred dollars, but it seems more sturdy than the MDF of the Festool. I do not have one of these tops, so I cannot put some dogs in the three quarter inch holes and see how they are for alignment and how square they are to one another. I know that if I do that on a Festool made top, it's dead nuts on. As far as, you know, I think he kind of answer, answered the question himself when he said, I know the Festool dog hole devices will not work, but there are lots of three quarter inch accessories. So, and that's basically it right there. I don't know, Hui, you have, you have one of these armor. Yes, I do top. have an armor tool top. Well, actually it's a portable bench, a roll around yeah. bench. And I have not used it the way I would use the MFT style top on my multifunctional outfit assembly table. So those holes are aligned within a couple of thousandths of an inch from each other. They're perfectly perpendicular for the most part. And I got them machined by a CNC uh, shop here locally and, and I paid for it. It was, it was not cheap, but it wasn't terribly expensive, all things considered. How but, much was it to have a CNC top like that? Uh, my top is, I believe, about four feet by almost four feet by six feet, and it was $150 with the material. That's cheap. It was about $150. The butcher block top is exactly like it is. It's a butcher block top. It's more like a workbench. So what you would expect from that is using, you're going to want the dog hole type device to actually rack within that hole because that's the locking mechanism. You would not you do the same thing on a, a three quarter inch MDF type MFT top. What you're using that for is for light duty machine operation with like a track saw or the router or the domino. The armor top is more like a workbench top. And, and so for that, I don't actually use it to uh, where I need the holes to be orthogonal or perpendicular to each other. So I can't attest. Well, well, I, I guess, I guess my question is, Hui, let's say you didn't have your multifunction outfeed assembly table, mm -hmm. AKA the moat. Mm -hmm. And you had to use just the armor top. Mm -hmm. And let's say, because, you know, we don't know Lamar's circumstances as far as space goes in the shop. Right. Right. So he's really looking at the difference between an MFT three and the armor tool. And the way I'm reading this is that, you know, should I go with the armor tool because it looks like a much beefier top than the than the MDF top? Well, it is a much beefier top. I mean, it's well, well yeah, maple. But I mean, is it but can you use it like an MFT top? Are the holes good? I mean, are the holes perfectly aligned? See, I don't I don't know because I don't use it for that. <laughs> Haven't you ever tested it? I've not, no. I have not actually, because I, again, I don't use it for that. I use it for, you know, hold fast, things like that. I have not used it. To, I, I guess I should check to see if it's aligned. Yeah. 
Because it may be, it may be within a couple thousand. Yeah, we don't know. Sean, what, what what do you think? Do you you don't use any top like this at all? Do you? No, I use the uh, the dog holes on my workbench, but I really do need something like this for using a track saw. I will tell you that. If it were me, I would probably give the Armor Tool Butcher Block top a try. And you know, if it's if if they're out of whack, then I would send it back and you know go the MFT route for the the precision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but for a hundred dollars more, you're going to get a bigger table, thicker table. I would just I would give the the Butcher Block top a try first. Well, okay. there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would I would really reach out, you know, maybe at some point in time we that you, you can check the uh the alignment or, the, or how the the tolerance of those 3 quarter inch holes for us. Yeah, I I'll check that. Maybe, maybe maybe we can get back to we can bring that up on the next show. For sure. Just real quick, I know he mentions that there are some 3 quarter inch accessories and stuff and and you, you've got to look no further than the Armor Tool website itself. They sell all the accessories you're ever going to need for that for that top. So yeah, they got they got a ton of stuff. Yeah, yeah, they've got you covered. So I think there's not going to be anything that you need that's only available on the MFT 20 millimeter that you can't get some sort of equivalent on the butcher block yeah. top. And I've got I've got a lot of I've got a lot of armor clamps that I got the 20 millimeter post for. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah, if it were me, and you, you you're going to throw down the money anyways. Um, if you're, you know, going to spend an extra hundred dollars, I would just get the butcher block. Mm. Just my opinion. So who's got the next question? I believe I do. This is a fun one. And we could talk about this on a whole dedicated podcast episode, but to keep it nice and short, we'll answer a, a few, few of them each. Um, but this one says, love the show. Definitely one of the best woodworking podcasts out there. Well, thank Ooh. you, Ron. I'm going to build a two car garage. That's approximately 24 by 30 for use as my new shop. I'm a hobbyist woodworker, mostly a couple hours here and there, nights and weekends. If you were building a new shop from the ground up, what features and considerations would you recommend? Thanks, Ron. Why don't we go? Why don't we go round robin, where you know, yeah, you say something you would like, and then we say something he'd like, and then because I think we all have a lot of the same needs or wants, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one. This is in no particular order. Uh, if you are not parking cars in the garage, I'm just saying, if you're not, then I would look at some sort of plywood or hardwood flooring uh, for comfort, protect your sharp tools if you drop them. And you could also use it as a raised floor so you can put power and DC piping in the floor. So that would be my first thing. If you're not parking in there, uh, what would be one of your items? would have to be electrical. Make sure that you got plenty of 220 volt along with 110 volt outlets. Right now, uh, I wish I had one or two more extra 220 volt dedicated dedicated lines. Uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm only running two. Uh, and it would be nice to have a couple of extras so I don't have to run extension cords. Is your box maxed out? Yes. <laughs> get a get those double breakers yeah that's what i'm that's what i've been using but i i would like to install one or two more lines using the double breakers that's easy to do yeah how about you guy what um i would have to say if i wasn't parking a car in there and i had four walls i would build a separate part of the shop actually in addition onto that 24 by 30 for a finishing room Mm. i would love to have a spray booth Absolutely. I would just kill to have a spray booth. Not only to spray stuff, 
but to store some of the bigger pieces that you have to make sometimes. You know, that's always the problem in a garage shop. You know, for me, I don't have, you know, small machines. I've got all full-size machines. I have no room for anything. Mm -hmm. If I want to build something big, you know, I really don't have the room for it. You know, we've talked about this before, like kitchen cabinets. Where the hell do I put them? Yeah. That's what I would look at. Don't go 24 by 30. Go 24 by 30 and then another maybe, you know, 16 by 20 or something. Yeah, that's a good point, Guy, is, you know, we didn't even cover it. Go as large as you can. Why stop at 24 by 30 if you can go larger? <laughs> yeah. You'll fill it up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's see. Plenty of lights. Ooh. And there are companies that will work with you to, you know, design your shop and some CAD program to place the lights in the proper location um, so that you'll have adequate lighting in all our areas. So that would be one of my picks as well as is, is proper lighting. Uh, would you guys go LED or? I like LED. Okay. I don't, I don't have LED and I don't really plan on putting it in. Yeah. Well, if you're going to go, if you're building a new shop, would you go LED? I don't know. I'd have to look at the cost. Okay. They look expensive. Well, there you go. That would be my second pick would be LED lights. I would have to say for myself, because I live in Alabama, I love having a ductless mini split in my shop. It saved me, man, to be able to work year round. Because uh, the first couple of years, I can just remember it being so brutally hot and just not being able to, to work out in that shop. And so ductless mini split or some form of uh, climate control in the shop. A yeah, must have controls. A, that, that, that was going to be my next thing. Oh, sorry. Control. Took it, man. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. In a, in, a, in a two car garage, you know, you're going to set your machines up. Let's say you're not putting cars in there and you set your machines up and then you decide, well, this isn't working here and that's not working there. Everything needs to be on a mobile base. I don't care if you had a, a hundred by a hundred shop. I'd still have mobile bases on everything. Yeah. Except maybe a drill press. But other than that, I'd still have mobile base. It's so nice to be able, and good heavy-duty ones. There's nothing worse than a cheap piece of junk mobile base. Expensive. I've got portamates on mine. You know, They're like $150 a piece, but they're awesome. They hold like 1,500 pounds, and you know, I can put anything on them, and they just roll around really easy. So that would be my recommendation is mobile bases on everything. Okay. And to piggyback off of uh, Hui's uh, heating and air via mini split would be insulation in the walls uh, mm. and on the door. Um, I think that's something that you definitely want to do while you're building it is just go ahead and insulate the, the whole thing if yeah. you can. Garage doors too, seal those things. Yep. And, and just one quick thing on the door. I think I mentioned it before, but I have, I bought some aftermarket, the wheels that go on the side of the door that run in the track that are spring loaded. So it keeps the door pressed against the frame. So it doesn't blow open with wind and let a lot of heat and air in and out. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So another one that I can think of, which is, thank goodness I have it in my shop is actually having some form of plywood or, or um, what is it called? I think it's called uh, the TI, uh, T111. Yeah, T111. That stuff is really great to have on the walls because I like uh, hanging 
jigs, fixtures, things that I use readily on the walls. It's it's just nice to have and not having to worry about always being in a stud. You know, mind you, it's not like super heavy stuff, but yeah, you don't need to get T one eleven. You can just get regular CDX and paint it. It'll yeah, look pretty nice. But yeah, that's that's a huge thing, man. Being able to put a screw anywhere in your wall and hang something. Mm-hmm. That's that's a big plus. That's a that's that's a good one. We, if I had to do it all over again, what would I do? So the last one's going to come to me, and and you know we talked about light before, you know LEDs or fluorescent, but put some good double pane windows in that mm. can give you a lot of natural light. Absolutely. That is really, really helpful, especially when you're you're looking at color and things like that. Mm-hmm. Fluorescent, if you go fluorescent lights, it can really change the color of a lot of the wood. Right. And natural light is going to, you know, help negate that a little bit. So that would be another recommendation is as many windows as you can. I wish I had more windows. I wish I had a window. <laughs> Guy, I think you only have one window in your shop, right? Yes. I have two, but it's still, I wish I had more. Well, I think I've got the last question. So this is actually directly to me. It's uh, Matterhorn Woodworks. He says, "We, how's the baby? Oh, she's getting huge. <laughs> What's about like 60, 70 pounds, 60, 70 pounds by now? No, she's not taking weight gainer. <laughs> uh, my wife and I had our first not long after you. He is four months old, a little baby boy. Uh, the work-life, home-life balance came relatively easy, but I'm having trouble adding in shop time, especially during the week. If I only have between five and nine with the family, how do I justify spending a quarter of that time fooling around in the shop? Or am I now destined to be a weekend woodworker? Oh, actual question. How is we handling it? Um, It's hard, man. Uh, I'm not getting a lot of time in the shop. Uh, These are probably the years that I need to be cherishing the most the first couple of years with my with my newborn. Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing a couple hours during the week here and there, but I try to maximize my time on the weekends as best I can. It's it's not easy, and sometimes it's very much a struggle. But I don't want to be missing out on the growth of my child over me fooling around in the shop. So it's, it's all about priorities, you know. It's uh, this is uh, not a full time thing for me. It's just a part time thing. So something's got to give somewhere, and the woodworking has got to is what has to give, unfortunately. But uh, now, guy, I know you've you've raised a family, so. At any time, did you really sort of sacrifice a lot of time out in the shop? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lot of help. <laughs> I, I'm going to be no help on this question at all. I was always a, a weekend warrior. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd work all day and I didn't want to go out in the shop for a couple hours. Yeah. Yeah. It's It was never really a question for me. Yeah. I was always just doing it on the weekends when I had time. Um Sean, you're the bachelor here. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I've got nothing. <laughs> Don't you have little nieces and nephews that come over all the time? Nah, every now and then, I've gotten the uh, the nephew to to sweep a little bit. He enjoys that for the time being. <laughs> how, how, how old is he? He is seven, going on eight. All right. Yeah, he enjoys sweeping and using that little magnetic wand that I use to pick up the uh, arbor nut from the table saw when I drop it. 
he likes you know sticking that to things and sweeping but that's about it yeah you know that's 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 a that's a really tough question and we said it best what are your priorities mm-hmm. if you're if you and your wife both share this responsibility which you both do you have to determine you know when is it appropriate to go out in the shop on a weeknight or on a Saturday or a Sunday because you don't want to miss anything. Yep. And then on top of that too, my wife has things that she needs to do and that she wants to do. And we designate time that, uh, that she gets to do those things too, because she's spending a lot of time with the baby, a lot more than I do. Is is she, is she working? She works as a ballet instructor. Yeah. She works for a studio here locally in Huntsville. Okay. Okay. How many hours a week is she working? Uh, this is all personal. You don't have to. You can just say nunya. Well, it, it's actually quite okay because it's it's kind of interesting because the way the ballet studio works is that as it comes towards the end of the school year, the amount of time that she dedicates is a lot. I mean, this past week was her recital and she probably spent a good 20, 30 hours at the studio or at the theater. And that was on the books a year ago and I knew that. So in the last two, three weeks, I've not had any time in the shop during the week. But again, that was on the books and I knew that. Yeah, Generally speaking, she's probably at the studio anywhere from six to 10 hours uh, during the school year. But as it gets towards the end of the school year, man, she spent a lot of time at that studio. So, you know, and she's doing that in the evenings during the week. So, you know, I got to watch the baby or we get a babysitter. Get it. You need a, you need a nanny. Yeah. I'll tell you what, man. I was not prepared for it. You can afford it. You know, those rich engineer guys. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, I think it's time to look at our woodworker highlights. Sean, who do you got for us this week? I have Craig Thibodeau. That's at CT Fine Furniture on Instagram. Mm, Great choice. Yeah. There's so many things to say about Craig. Uh, I don't even know where to start. He's obviously a fantastic fine woodworker, uh, excellent in, in marquetry, uh, veneering. His, his pieces are extremely beautiful, complex, makes a lot of puzzle pieces, puzzle boxes, puzzle cabinets, just an amazing inspiration. And you're crazy if you're not following him. Yeah, he, he, he does a really amazing work. And a, a, a piece that he just finished recently was a puzzle box. And he has a YouTube channel where he shows how they operate. And it's just mind blowing that he's, that someone is able to put something together like this out of wood, out of wood. Yeah. Yeah. Top level, top quality work, amazing stuff. And he also has a book. If you've never dabbled in veneering, it's called the craft of veneering, a complete guide from basic to advanced that is uh, worth picking up. If you are getting into veneering or if you, done it but need to know more you know it's from like you said from basic to advanced uh, great book check them out at ct fine furniture so guy who do you have uh i have a gentleman from columbus ohio his name is brian prusa prusa woodworks p-r-u-s-a woodworks i've known brian for a couple years he's <laughs> he's an awesome guy he's a honest to goodness day in day out woodworker for a living but he makes some really nice stuff. He has a really good feed. He's always doing something. And he's just a, a hell of a nice guy. I, I really recommend giving him a follow. Do you guys follow him? I have not, but I will now that you've told me about him. Sean? I do now. 
converse converse with Brian. He loves the DMing and and commenting and stuff like that. He's, he's a good dude. All right, mm-hmm. everybody out there listening, follow Brian Prusa Prusa Woodworks. We all right. So I've got Kevin Almeida. I think I'm pronouncing that right. At Kevin zero six one one. I really like Kevin a lot. First off, he's he's a hilarious guy. He's got you know some a little bit of that uh that guy type sarcasm that I like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's a he's a wood, weekend woodworker and uh, nights and weekends kind of guy. You know, he's got a family and uh, he's not doing this full time. He's mostly making for his family and friends. And I just I just love seeing the stuff that he does. He's he just does my style of woodworking, you know, a lot of shaker pieces. Uh, he just finished a butler chest that also doubles as a chest of drawers for his, for his son. And uh, he modified it to, uh, to fit his needs. Uh, he's just a really great follow. He, he, he's great to talk with and he does some fine work stuff that I seek to try to do for myself in my own shop. So check him out. Kevin zero six one one. And before we continue, just uh, something real funny. Hui and I, this is the second time we've done this. We, we don't talk before <laughs> this show. We were going to pick the same exact person. We did this last time with, with Brian Roberts, and mm-hmm. we did it this time with Kevin. We were both <laughs> both going to, uh, to say Kevin. So that's strange how that works. Like minds. That's right. Well, I think that wraps up this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer your questions from the woodworking community. So if you have questions, please send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or you can DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Guyswoodshop.com. Sean? I can be found at simplecove.com. And just to mention, the contest over there ends in 29 days. So check that out. And at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. Great. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Adios. See ya.